This is a special episode of The Waves, Slate's podcast on gender, feminism, and for today, the death of California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Feinstein broke major ground for women in politics, both in her home state and in Congress. She was San Francisco's first female mayor and the first woman elected to the Senate for California. The legislation she's probably most remembered for is her decades-long fight against gun violence, which included a federal assault weapons ban in the 1990s. We have to come to grips in America with our love affair with weapons. To top it all off, she was the longest-serving female senator in the body's history. But recently, that long tenure and her declining health had become controversial in itself. We are going to discuss it all. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you usually hear me hosting another Slate podcast, What Next TBD. Today, I am joined by Slate politics writer Alex Salmon to talk about what the death of this pioneering senator means for Congress and for the Democratic Party going forward. Stick with us. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're a fan of what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to the Waves feed. Every Thursday, you'll hear new conversations about politics, culture, general news, and what gender has to do with it all, which is usually a lot. Like, for example, our last episode when guest host Kat Chow talked about how Afghan women refugees have been caught in the mess that is U.S. immigration policy. You should check it out. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and I am joined now by Slate Politics writer Alex Salmon. Alex, welcome. Hey, Lizzie. Okay, so let, let's start with the basics. Big question, but who was Dianne Feinstein? Like, what, what has she symbolized both in the Senate and in Democratic politics as a whole? Yeah, it's a really big question. Um, <laughs> she obviously is is a, a politician with this titanic record, right? The first female mayor of San Francisco, the first president of Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, first a uh, female California senator, you know, the, the list of firsts on her on her resume is, is is astounding and, you know, really a path-breaking politician for women in politics, especially in California, but nationally as well. And I think that's probably the first word in, in her reputation and her, and her legacy politically. The rest of it, I think, actually has evolved over time. And so, um, as you mentioned before, like her, her record on the assault weapons ban, obviously yeah. one of her most famous contributions to American politics – her work on the the torture report uh, in 2014, the report on uh, the CIA's extraordinary rendition program and their uh, enhanced interrogation was a really watershed moment in American politics. And then, of course, you you can't not talk about her length of tenure and the fact that a lot of these big accomplishments that she won in her time, she basically saw expire, run out, or be overturned uh, hmm. all while she was still in the chamber and. Many people were asking her to step aside and let someone else have a have a hack at it. I mean, I'm just thinking about this. I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording that that Feinstein was in the Senate when I was covering Capitol Hill in 2004, 2005, 2006. So, I mean, she certainly had an exceptionally long tenure. I, I think if you are a younger listener, you might not know that much about her path to the Senate and how kind of startling it was that the the circumstances that brought her to national recognition. C- can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, her her ascent is really, I think, really fascinating because it's it's so unlikely, actually, the way it all sort of came together. So she started out in the 70s on the, on the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. She ran for mayor twice in San Francisco and lost both times. 
And at that point, it sort of seemed like her political career might be over, that she had had, you know, a role in local politics. She was a consequential figure there, but it didn't look like she was going any further than that. And then Dan White, who's a former supervisor, assassinates both Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone in 1978. And the Board of Supervisors decides basically to appoint uh, Feinstein as mayor on an interim basis, just sort of to get them through the, the, you know, the, the aftermath of that assassination. And despite having just lost election and, and, and so she gets into the uh, mayor's office on, on those grounds, a very turbulent time in San Francisco's history and gets it because she's known to be a centrist. She's known to be Hmm. someone who was, you know, not of the Harvey Milk persuasion and not so much of, of the Dan White persuasion who, uh, who killed both Milk and Moscone but someone who might be able to take the temperature down. She actually, you know, actually had caucused more with, with the Dan Whites of the world than with the Harvey Milks. But, um, you know, her her centrism was the appeal there. She was not a liberal in the way that San Francisco was known to be liberal, even in the 70s. And that was sort of the beginning. And then to go on from there, her next step was even actually almost as unlikely as, the, as that. She ran for the governorship in 1990 and she lost. And again, it seemed like her career might be over. And then the guy who won, Pete Wilson, was a California senator, so he stepped down to take over as governor, and she won the special election to replace him. So, you know, it's it's a it's a very interesting path. You know, from then on, 1992 on, she's basically in, in the Senate, is it, you know, 30 years in the Senate. And I think that what you would say, looking back now, is that as the state moved to the left and became more and more progressive, she was one of the slowest and last people to come around towards that political orientation. So she's very much a relic of a more conservative California. Let's talk about her legislative accomplishments. Does that kind of centrist style, do you think it served her well in the Senate? Certainly the Senate she initially joined, you know, she she did have some big legislative wins. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to put it is the Senate that she originally joined. I think that her approach and her style was was very effective, like looking for bipartisan wins, finding common ground with Republicans, being able to sort of broker these negotiations. She was very effective at that. And and when she got to the Senate, that was the nature of the body she was in. I think that's a reason why she was known to be so successful and why she sort of won this outsized reputation in the in the early goings of her Senate career. And, and yeah, the, the Assault weapons ban is a perfect example of that. Uh, a huge legislative win uh, on yeah. gun control. It's something that has become totally intractable now uh, and almost unthinkable. Um, and then, of course, the Senate changes. And that, I think, is really critical, is that the nature of the Senate has changed dramatically in, the, in those across those 30 years. And I think Feinstein's critics, and it would be hard not to agree with them on this, would say that she didn't notice those changes. Or if she noticed them, she didn't sort of change her approach to accommodate uh, what was happening in, in the chamber there. And, and her, I think, you know, if, if we were to split her tenure in half, you would say that at least the, the latter half was, I think, a lot less impressive, if only because the Senate had changed around her and she was slow to adapt. Well, it's interesting when you think about it in the backdrop of gender, so much of what she was doing was trailblazing in the 70s and 80s, and then younger generations got impatient with her. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the one of the lasting memories uh, that her family and her and her friends and her boosters, I th- would think, would not like to point to. But I think if you're a younger American, one of those memorable moments she was involved in was when she was chiding these child activists who came to her office a handful of years ago to advocate for 
uh, aggressive climate policy for the Green New Deal. And she basically scolded these kids and, and said, I know better. You didn't vote for me. And, you know, it's 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 exactly that. The uh, the younger generation had a, had a different sense, a different sensibility, a different set of priorities. And when Feinstein was the first, when she was, you know, breaking down these barriers and, and uh, carving the path for, for women in politics in a lot of ways, that was a different era and a different set of sensibilities. And, and now, you know, younger younger Americans, younger people in politics, because of a lot of what she's accomplished, but also because of how politics has changed, would say like, you know, their sense of her is very different. Let's talk about the recent years where there have been a number of health issues. Um, younger folks were raising, and not just younger folks, but but Democrats writ large were raising questions about her cognitive abilities. It's a difficult subject to talk about, and yet it's important to the political future of the Democrats. So I, I'd love it if you could lay out some of the incidents that sparked concern. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of these things that I think if you in and around Washington, D.C., you would say, well, there was rumors about this for years and years and years. Like going back long before she even ran for re-election in 2018, there was talk about her sort of declining uh, cognitive condition or her mental state and... and uh, and I think the first time we really saw this on like a national level was uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings in 2018. She was the Senate, the chair of the Senate Judiciary, and she had gotten information from Christine Blasey Ford, the woman who testified in that very, very famous hearing about uh, her past with Kavanaugh. And she sat on that information for months. And this was the first time where people in Democratic circles in particular were like, I don't know what she's doing and I don't know if she's all the way there. And, and, you know, obviously someone with that much standing who's been in the Senate for so long, you have to be very delicate about lobbying these sorts of allegations towards a, a politician of, of, you know, of her might and standing. But that I think was the beginning of it. I think in California as well, there was some knowledge of that. The California democratic party emphatically did not endorse her reelection campaign in 2018. So already there was a sense both that she was, sort of out of step politically with the state, but also there were grumblings beneath the surface about, you know, how she was doing her and her health. And, and I think that factored into them not endorsing her. And and in fact, she, she ran a, a very tight re-election race in 2018. I don't even think she would have made it through if not for some last second endorsements from Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, figureheads who, you know, at the national level of the party wanted to, you know, cared about her reputation and, and wanted to see that she didn't lose re-election. So um, I think 18, you're already seeing some signs of it by 2020, and I'm sure we'll get into this too, with the Amy Coney Barrett hearing, you know, the secret is out at that point. And that was a really big turning point, I think. We're going to take a quick break here. In a moment, we'll return with Alex Salmon to talk about the death of Dianne Feinstein. And if you enjoy The Waves, please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, just go to slate.com slash The Waves Plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Slate's Lizzie O'Leary, and I'm joined by our political writer, Alex Salmon, to talk about the impact and legacy of California Senator Dianne Feinstein. She died Thursday night at the age of 90. 
Okay, Alex, we, we talked about this a little bit in the last segment, but let's go deeper on what Feinstein's death means for Senate Democrats in the near term. How, how is their agenda affected? What does it mean for them right now? Yeah, it's. It, I think there's a lot of scrambling in Washington because there are concerns about what this what this means. I don't. I don't think there's a. We don't. I don't think we have total clarity yet, even on what it means. But the first and top consideration right now is is the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's you know obviously with a divided government, confirming judges is the most important thing the Senate is, can do right now with its Democratic majority. At least you know if you're a Democrat, this is top priority is getting these judges confirmed, and without. Feinstein, they no longer have a majority on that committee. And and so, I mean, she's obviously been absent for long stretches. The committee's already been pretty gummed up because of that, because, you know, she just has been in and out of the hospital for months and months and months. But we're back to now a permanent deadlock in that committee. And so there are concerns. I think, you know, if, if you're following politics, you've probably seen a lot of uh, already there's there's concern that Republicans will, will refuse to seat her replacement on the committee and the committee will be deadlocked permanently. I don't think that that is what's going to happen. I, I, I'm not sure that is one of those those rumors that seems to have actually come from Feinstein defenders who were trying to, to, to protect her from having to step down. Hmm. But obviously in a 51-49 Senate, when one of your Democratic senators dies, the numbers get even narrower. And, and so I think there'll, there'll be a lot of pressure on Governor Gavin Newsom to get a replacement in there quickly. The problem is it's not a very alluring job right now. The, the, finding someone to actually take that position is, is no small feat. Right. Welcome to like full tackle football immediately. Right. And and also, so the race for her to replace her in 2024 is already on, right? There are three Democratic candidates who are at the front of this race. It's a very, very competitive race for the Senate seat. And Newsom has said that he will not pick one of those aspirants to take over the seat temporarily. He Oh, interesting. So like no Adam Schiff. Right. We're not, it's not going to be Adam Schiff. It's not going to be Katie Porter. And it probably is not going to be Barbara Lee, although she has made it clear that she would like that. But the, there, there are, there's a cascade of complications. And, and the first is that Newsom, I think in 2020, said that if the seat came available, maybe it was 2021, that he would appoint a black woman to the seat. So that was the first commitment he made. That was in part because when he appointed Kamala Harris's replacement for the other Senate seat, he appointed Alex Padilla. And the thought of having no female senators in California after having two female senators and having one black female senator, I think you know the optics of that were, were very concerning for California politicians. So he makes this pledge. And then he recently made a pledge that he would not pick someone from the current crop of contestants because he wants that race to go on sort of as it was going, didn't want to interfere in that race and give someone an incumbency advantage. So now you have to find someone who is a black woman who is willing to take this job for only a year, basically who is willing to resign their current political post to take this job for only a year, promising not to run for re-election. So it's the ultimate dead-end job. And then enter into a Senate that's like pretty much deadlocked with, you know, Joe Manchin uh, voting with Republicans all the time and then immediately give the seat up. So it's it actually is a really thorny calculation that's going on. There's a lot of jockeying going on in the background already, but it's it's not actually as simple as just sort of picking the next person and putting them in there because there are all these other calculations at play. You mentioned the 2024 election and, and the chances that the Democrats could lose the Senate. California, pretty safe seat for the Democrats. Um, but but does 
her death impact the 2024 election, do you think? I think it does. I think it does. And, and um, it, it, in interesting ways, though, I, it's, yes, yeah, certainly a Democrat will be winning the Senate seat. I, you know, simultaneously, you'd say that's the, pretty much the safest Democratic Senate race in the country. At the same time, it will certainly be the most expensive Senate race in American history. So, you know, you have three candidates who, who basically are splitting the vote three ways. Right now, they have raised a ton of money. It's going to be very, very competitive in that sense. And I think that you actually just sort of like reading the tea leaves of, of, of California Democrats, Nancy Pelosi has said, at least privately, that she thought that it would be worse for Adam Schiff's chances if Newsom appointed a replacement for Feinstein rather than letting her serve out the rest of the term and, and running it as a just a pure open race, which I think was part of the calculation on supporting Feinstein against those calls for her to step down when it was very clear that she was not doing well. And in fact, Pelosi said on September 5th to the press that Feinstein was doing great and that her health issues were overblown. Uh, uh, and here we are four weeks later. So, yeah, she obviously thinks that it's going to affect the, the election in some way. I, you know, obviously that seems like a pretty marginal impact, but um, I think it'll have some impact. It, it's not totally clear exactly what that'll be, but it'll make some difference, I, th- I think, for certain. Does it make a difference in the broader question, an- another uncomfortable question, of how long politicians should be serving and, and at what age? Diane Feinstein was 90. Mitch McConnell is 81. There have been a lot of conversations about this this summer. Are we still in this moment of let's mark this trailblazing woman and her accomplishments? Or does her death underscore the other conversation about age in American politics? Right. It's, it's, it's hard not to. It's, it's hard to ignore that. It, it, I think it would be a, a disservice to this conversation to ignore it and, and to Feinstein's record and to the nature of American pro- politics broadly, it's, you know, the comparisons to Ruth Bader Ginsburg are going to be out there yeah. and, and obvious. And, and I think we all saw what happened when she overstayed her time there and, and, and you know, an incredibly consequential decision. I don't think this will, will be as bad for Democrats as, as that was. But I think, it, yes, it's absolutely a conversation that has to be has to be had. And, and you know, we just we understand like the, the sort of uh, geriatric nature of the Democratic Party in particular, I think, is is really, really notable because the Democratic voters are very young, right? It's like the people who vote for these politicians are young. The politicians themselves are very old. And I think that even beyond sort of policy prescriptions and ideology, which I think, you know, Feinstein sort of embodied a lot of things that of a bygone era in terms of her her politics and her policy uh but yeah, it's also just this very basic sort of concern that these these a lot of these politicians have have been here too long and, and they're too old and they are not serving their constituents to the best of their abilities. And I think that you would have to say for the last handful of years, I mean, Feinstein hasn't had a town hall in years and years and years and years prior to this uh, that she was not serving her constituents to the best of the ability of, of one of California's two senators, which given that the state of 40 million people only gets two, it's a pretty big job. What, what are you going to be watching over the next few months as both the tributes to Feinstein pour in in the near term future, but then also these questions about who replaces her and how the Democrats move forward? You know, what are your what are your big things to watch? I mean, I think that the way we talk about Feinstein's record is one really important thing, because I, I do think that she was both a, a trailblazer and someone whose record, I, I don't think that 
Democrats would say is in line with the the party now. And and there's one anecdote that that always sort of like sticks out to me when she ran for governor in 1990. She went to a uh, a, a Democratic meetup. It was an event with delegates and and the like. And she, in the middle of her speech, she went off script and then started effectively railing on her support for the death penalty. Was was basically went effectively off script to say, I support the death penalty. Uh, I'm, you know, 100% in support of it and other Democrats don't support it. And she got booed by the Democrats in this, in this, uh, in this event. And it was all for a campaign ad. They had, they had mics and cameras up and she ran basically being like, I'm, you know, I'm the conservative Democrat. I, you know, I offend liberal pieties and, and sensibilities like, and she ended up losing that. She won, she won the primary and lost to a Republican in general. But that those sort of politics aren't part of Democratic politics these days. And I think that uh, you would like to see the Democratic Party has learned from those mistakes. It has learned that like the 1970s approach to Democratic politics is not the one that we need for now. So I, I think that that will be interesting. And then I think, too, right, where they go both with this her replacement who takes over, I think will be fascinating because – for as as blue as California is right now, as as progressive as it's gotten, and it really has moved in the course of her political career has has totally changed uh, politically. In San Francisco, in particular, you're seeing a little bit of a reversion, uh, a little bit more of a, a move in a more conservative direction. And so, Newsom is obviously from San Francisco. Feinstein's from San Francisco. If we end up with a San Francisco-based appointee, maybe someone like London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco herself, currently. Will that represent the state broadly? Will it represent the the long arc of 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 California's political overhaul to a to a very liberal, very progressive state, or will it represent this sort of like late breaking San Francisco trend towards something more conservative? I think it'll be really inter- interesting to see. Alex, before I let you go, is there anything else that I haven't asked you or that has popped into your mind that you think listeners should know and think about or remember Diane Feinstein by? It's tough. It's, it's, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a very mixed record in my mind. Like it's, you know, it's someone who did, did, you know, it's a, it's a pathbreaking legacy. It's someone who really broke down barriers and, and set a lot of firsts. And it's someone I think who, who's in the end sort of overstayed and, and saw a lot of her own legacy commitments go away. And, and, you know, I think that that is, it's an unfortunate, it's unfortunate that's the case that, you know, we saw the assault weapons ban expire that we saw, women lose their right to choose that we saw the Supreme Court taken over by a, a very, very aggressive right wing majority that that Feinstein helped basically helped consolidate that power or at least see them through confirmation. It's a mixed record. I, it, it's it's you know, I think that she's not as bad as uh, as she was, has been made out to be in the last few years of her life, because obviously, you know, her obvious health problems were sort of led the charge on on uh, a lot of this stuff but nor is she i think nor is she really uh uh was she really like a a maverick of of progressive politics i, I don't think she was ever that so you know somewhere in the middle I, I i think it's a you know it's certainly someone um an interesting and consequential figure in american politics no doubt and if, if that seems a little <laughs> weak on on uh or just not, not florid as a as a as an obit. I, I I think that that's probably where we should stay at least for now. Alex Salmon is a political writer for Slate. Alex, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 
All right, that is all for this special episode of The Waves. The show is produced by Shayna Roth and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. I'm your guest host, Lizzie O'Leary, and The Waves will be back next week. Different topic, same time and place.